I'm Dr. Krista Neff, and you are listening to The Soul of Life. Hey, it's Keith Miller. Welcome to another exciting episode of Season 4. I'm doing another throwback replay, going to bring back Richard Swartz, the founder of IFS, Internal Family Systems Therapy. And I think you'll really enjoy this. It's a long interview, but it's one of my most popular episodes. Dick Schwartz is... We're going to look back at this and realize he was a living Sigmund Freud. Uh, that's how much of a game changer he has been in the field of psychology, introducing the idea of natural multiplicity and altered state psychology. So sit back and listen to Dick and I speak about the amazing model and community that he has founded and worked with over the last 30 years. And we'll also talk about Mary Trump's book, Too Much and Never Enough. Fascinating to hear this icon of this movement of natural multiplicity and IFS speak about such an important political moment in our history. Hope you enjoy. There's this funny Saturday Night Live skit where the comedian Bob Newhart, and it's an old skit, right? But he plays the role of a psychiatrist. And so his phobic client comes in. She's like afraid of, I guess she's claustrophobic. And, uh, and he gives her this advice and he says, this isn't going to take long. <laughs> and he says, look, I got two words. And he asks her if she's ready. And she takes out a pen and pencil and she asks if, if she should write this down. And he says, well, you know, it's, it's just two words. Most people really don't need to write it down, but if you feel better doing that, go ahead. And, and he asked her if she's ready. And she said, yes, she's eager. She wants help. She's suffering from these panic attacks. And he says, okay, here are the two words. And he yells at her, stop it. And she's a bit unsure of whether to be like confused or like insulted. She's got this like look on her face. She's stunned. And she kind of banters with him like, what do you mean? And he says, it's kind of funny. You wouldn't believe how many people ask me that question. I say two words and they ask me, what do I mean? And so he repeats this. He keeps yelling at her, stop it over and over. And that's the punchline. And so she kind of goes on and on in, in various ways, but he just keeps coming back to this punchline. And um, this gag is funny for its absurdity. I mean, after all, we can't just tell our anxious or fearful or depress parts of us to just stop? Or can we? I mean, if one steps back to consider that most modern psychotherapies aim to actually do this exact thing, they, they, they try to help us stop doing things that are maybe not healthy or overcome depression or stop worrying, manage our fear or anger. I mean, it's, it's not a joke, right? I mean, this is serious business. So enter Dr. Richard Schwartz. He's the creator of a kind of talk therapy that is kind of a big deal, and he's my guest for this episode of The Soul of Life. Dick is responsible for setting off a wave of interest over the last 10 years, and really a brush fire, especially in the last three to five years, in the field of clinical psychology because of his radical idea that, in fact, we can pretty much just stop it. We can, like, have a conversation with parts of us that are, say anxious about people not wearing a mask 
And, and we can ask those parts of us to, to step aside and then boom, we're not anxious anymore. Now I'm, I'm kind of oversimplifying and, and this may not sound like rocket science to you if you've, if you've done therapy or you're a therapist, you might wonder, isn't that what therapy helps us do anyway? Well, not really. So for decades, therapists have been taught to help people overcome their anxiety, their negative thoughts, their fear, depression, or whatever, their unhealthy impulses. And most psychotherapies try to help people put aside or push aside or override their feelings rather than integrate them and befriend them or take care of them. So it's almost like a destructive edit process. It's like, we're going to box this stuff up about yourself that you don't like and throw it away as if we can actually do that. And that's an important point. And, and a quick little backstory on this is that Dick Schwartz was one of the best of these kind of therapists. He was one of the people who was teaching other therapists, family therapists, how to help families and individuals in the family overcome like serious issues like eating disorders, like kids starving themselves, you know, a child who's cutting herself or is suicidal or having panic attacks. So, so these are strong urges. And he was, you know, one of the best at helping people kind of, you know, try to overcome those urges. And as he tells it, one day he was working with a client and she had a eating disorder and he was doing this state-of-the-art intervention at the time. Um, she had a symptom of the eating disorder, which was kind of escalating uh, in, in that she was cutting herself. She wasn't just not eating. She was cutting herself in increasingly dangerous ways. And he asked her to agree to what's called a safety contract. That's like a standard thing that's like, you know, therapists are trained to do that very typically when there's a risky behavior happening. And, and he asked her to agree not to cut herself for the next however many days. And the girl agreed and she signed it. And a few days later, she came back. But she had a horrible self-inflicted cut across her face. And it was then that Dick realized he was playing a dangerous game. And she had upped the ante. He couldn't really afford to lose this game, right? He couldn't push her further. He couldn't double down on this and say, well, now sign another one, right? Because what's her next move? She could just play her ultimate card of suicide and it would be over. Dick decided he was going to try something different. He was going to try to get his clients not to fight against parts of themselves, but to actually start respecting these parts that are actually kind of hard to like respect. They're, they're, they say horrible things about the client. They, they, they're negative voices. They're scary. They, they, they're impulses that make people do things that are harmful to themselves. But he realized that those parts of them were powerful enough to do these harmful acts. So he better start listening to this part. He better start respecting it. And, and so he asked her to speak from the voice of the part that was doing the cutting instead of challenging it. It's like he said, pull up a chair. You've got a place here. You've got space. Why don't you tell me how you're doing it? 
what, what's life like? What's a day in the life like for you? Why do, why do you feel like you have to do this cutting? And so when he genuinely got curious about why it had to do the cutting, the girl was able to speak for that part and put into words a narrative that prior to that she had literally no conscious access to, no awareness. And, and it turns out these, these so-called dangerous or monstrous, even what some people would say like demonic-seeming parts of people are just protectors doing a job in the mind. It's, it's kind of like they're just boring protectors. <laughs> like literally, they're like the armed guards at the bank. If you pay attention to how they do this job and then start to get interested in them, respect how they do it, get to know them, you can actually ask them, why they're there and and like hey what are you protecting like why are you guys here what's inside and if you do this enough if you earn their trust literally they'll just let you inside of the psyche and once you get inside there's a whole process of what dick's approach which is called internal family systems therapy uses which is a form of mindfulness and appreciative inquiry and discovery of the parts of the psyche that, that are being protected that Dick calls exiles. And these tend to be kind of weak feeling parts or burdened, or these are parts that carry a lot of emotional pain. I think the genius of Dr. Schwartz really comes through here at this point because he systemized how to work with the protectors, not challenge them so they get bigger and more prolific, but get them to actually relax and give you access to the exiles and then work with the exiles to unburden the pain and then restore the system, restore hope in the system. And I, I hope you're still with me at this point and your eyes haven't glazed over um, because, wow, if you've never experienced counseling before, this is a really cool topic. Do you remember that Pixar animation called Inside Out back in 2015? It's an animation, so it, it seems pretty geared towards kids, but you might not realize that Pixar actually consulted with Dr. Schwartz about his groundbreaking model of how the mind works. So when you see scenes from that movie and how they depict little people running around inside the mind of the main character, a girl named Riley, you're, you're actually glimpsing some of Dick's work and what Richard Schwartz is famous for, something he calls natural multiplicity. When I interviewed Dick at the end of July... For the Soul of Life, the Mary Trump book, Too Much and Never Enough, had just come out the week before. So it's a real treat to hear one of the world's most foremost authorities on family trauma talk with me about her book and about her use of what he and I would consider the old model of pathologizing trauma compared to his non-pathologizing, I guess we could just say humanizing view of the mind. It's it's our experience that this approach has a far better track record for creating safety and stability needed to make changes without risking an escalation or proliferation of the unwanted or harmful behaviors. I really tried hard to keep this conversation with Dick free from psychobabble that won't make sense to non-professionals, but this is a deep, deep topic and we covered a lot of ground fast. Fortunately, if there's anything we discussed that's not clear, there's so many ways where you can hear Dick speak or read his books about his model or read other people talk about his model, which is called Internal Family Systems Therapy, or IFS. 
It's also called self-leadership. Um, and it's funny because IFS, internal family systems therapy, people often ask, is it family therapy? It's, it really isn't about your family, although that can come up. It's really about how the parts of the psyche behave as though they are members of a family. And you'll hear Dick explain this. So I'm going to give you a bunch of resources here on the website, on the soul of life show.com where you can learn a lot more. Oh, and hey, one favor to ask, please be sure to like this episode on YouTube or iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast or like the soul of life podcast on Facebook. If you're there so that others can hear Dick's hopeful message and be inspired. My guest is Dr. Richard Schwartz. Uh, he is a professor at Harvard Medical, Medical School, Department of Psychiatry, and the founder of IFS, Internal Family Systems Therapy, also known as Self-Leadership. Uh, Dick, welcome to the show. Thanks, Keith. Always great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks. Um, so I want to jump right in. I want to talk about the model that you're known for creating and developing, along with others who've collaborated with you. Um, it's meant a lot to me in my profession as a therapist and many others uh, who are in the mental health field, I think no doubt know about you, who you are. A lot of my listeners may not uh, know who you are, so they'll be hearing this for the first time. Um, and the internal family systems model teaches about this concept of multiplicity in the mind, which is a you know, kind of being of many minds, that that's completely normal, in fact. Um, so can you say more about that? And why is that such a radical departure from what we would I guess what I would call this, this era that we're coming out of, or probably still in, of, of where multiplicity is something to be treated or contained or something we're afraid of. Well, I think the why, it's an interesting question. Um, I, I would say predominantly because the people who began noticing parts the most uh, were noticing them in people who had been horribly abused and, and were, you know, struggling and other systems would call severe pathology. And so, and then that gradually translated into the field of uh, what used to be called multiple personality disorder and now is dissociative identity disorder. And the public got scared by movies like Three Faces of Eve and you know, uh, what was the other famous one? Um, There's the United States of of Terror. Tara? I think it that was one. Um, the, the the famous Sybil, Sybil. Oh, Sybil was yeah. the famous one from Psych right. 101, Abnormal Psych 101. Right. So, so having different personalities came to be seen as a sign of, of pathology and. Uh, and that's pretty deeply rooted in the culture. So it's been a tough sell, you know, all these many years I've been at this. Uh, and I've tried to frame it different ways and it's, it's still a tough sell. But yeah, um, I'm con convinced and uh, almost 40 years of experience has taught me that people are naturally multiple. It's not the product of trauma to have parts that were born with them, either these little inner personalities. And when we're born, it's either 
manifest and infant researchers like Barry Brazelton talk about five different states that infants rotate through and maybe those are the ones online when we're born and the others are dormant until the right time. So, so they're all valuable uh, and each has different talents and resources for us. But trauma and attachment injuries have the effect of forcing them out of their naturally valuable states into roles that can be destructive and makes, make them sort of frozen in the trauma, thinking that what's happening now is still happening. And all of that is what's pathological. Right, right. That's themselves. I know when you said it's a tough sell, I mean, w when I present uh, or clients I work with find out about the model I'm using or they kind of ask questions and kind of get the drift of where I'm going, kind of asking them to interact maybe or listen to and maybe befriend different parts of them not to, not to try to get rid of those parts. They naturally ask questions. I think one of the main things people say to me is, uh, you know, I'm not, I, I'm not, I haven't been traumatized. I, I've had a good life. So, you know, that might be for people with, you know, I know you write a lot about eating disorders and that was one of the um, populations that you worked with, severe eating disorders and, and self-injury, cutting, suicidality. Those are things that I, I hear a lot of people, high-functioning people say, you know, that's good for people who are really messed up, but, you know, that's just not normal stuff. Yeah, exactly. That's, those are examples of the we'll call legacy burden of pathologizing multiplicity that our culture carries. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't get nearly the same kind of pushback on this in the last, I'd say, 10 years. Yeah. What do you think is uh, different? Uh, I'm not sure. You know, there was the movie Inside Out. That yeah. It was uh, actually quite an accurate depiction of the, the arts. And, the Pixar uh, animation. Yeah. And otherwise, I'm not really sure, other than just the zeitgeist kind yeah. of show. Yeah, I know um, Bessel van der Kolk's book, um, Right. The yeah. Body Keeps the Score. I can't remember the date that was published, but that I kind of wonder because of his influence in the field of trauma and he, you have a chat, he, he cites you in a chapter, an entire chapter dedicates it to, um, you know, what he considers to be the cutting edge evidence-based or emerging evidence-based uh, disciplines to treat trauma. Yeah, I think in the, in the psychotherapy field, for sure, Bessels gave us a, bit, a lot of credibility. Uh, it, it helped also that we became evidence-based in the psychotherapy right. field. Right. But in the, I was speaking more of the culture in general. It just seems like it has a greater appreciation or, or acceptance of this phenomenon. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, Why? the way I've heard you explain it is, is, uh, is that, you know, a part of me wants to, you know, drink this entire <laughs> fifth of vodka or something. I haven't heard you say that personally, Dick. Yeah. <laughs> you know, but you know, parts will have this um, you know, energy to them. Well, it's really just our own inner voices. Is that, and that's what I want to make clear for people who are listening to this, wondering about what we're talking about. But really what you start to do with people and therapists who are trained in self-leadership do is, is really tune into these thoughts. They may be thoughts. They may be sensations in the body. They may be feelings. They may be um, visual. Um, any number of ways of uh, mental activity that we may have, you refer to as parts. And then you 
simply ask them to focus on those parts. Is, is that the gist of it? Yeah. Uh, those we call trailheads, which if you stay with, will lead you to the part, uh, almost like following a trail, will lead you to the part from which they're emanating. So mm-hmm. what most people call thinking is really just a, a dialogue a part of you is having with you or else having with another part. And by simply tuning into that and asking, getting curious and asking questions, you can find the parts that are talking and, and you'll be quite surprised that they have a lot to tell you that you haven't heard before. Right, right. And, and I know a lot of people in the Gestalt field, would, which is, um, I guess we would call it a, a, an experiential or representational psychology, I guess, that, that, that really helps people often known by its techniques of role playing. Uh, maybe you talk to somebody who's passed away, you talk to the, you talk to the part of you that's depressed, or you sit and you move over in a chair and you, you, you have this conversation with yourself, but you're, you're playing the different roles. So actors are very familiar with this in their training, for example, and it's a well-known technique in gestalt therapy. Um, so it's a little bit like that, but you you talk about it distinctly as though these are sub-personalities, and, and, and you don't mean that there's little people running around inside of us. No, I kind of do, actually. Tell me more. Well, they are more than just bundles of thought or emotion or affect, uh, because as you get to know them, they have full-range personalities. So, for example, you might think of the angry part of you as just a bundle of anger. But if you were to ask it about its anger, it would tell you that it's scared and that it uh, maybe has some pain and that it protects other parts of you that are very vulnerable. And it's just stuck in this role of being the big time protector, but it's, it's a full range little being inside of you. For me, these are actually sacred inner beings that deserve a lot of love and acceptance and, uh, Understanding just like sacred external beings. Sure, like sure. And most yeah. of them are quite young. Say that again. And most of them are quite young, even the ones sure. that seem so grown up and uh, uh, protected. Right. And for people listening who, who have experience in interpersonal neuro, neurobiology or the field of neurobiology itself, just how the brain works or what the mind is, how the mind is defined as the function of the flow of electricity through the brain. Um, how would you explain it? How would you put it in those terms? I mean, I, you know, for, for people who are skeptical and when they hear you say, uh, no, these are really personalities in there. Um, how would you describe that to a neuroscientist? Uh, well, you know, there are <laughs> many neuroscientific theories that talk about the multiplicity of the mind. They don't necessarily talk about parts in the same way I do, but they do talk about how there are these different modes inside the brain. And uh, so that's one way. But for me, uh, the brain is like any other organ in the body. It's, it's used by our parts. The parts are in the mind, which isn't just the brain. And so, yeah, when you're talking about the angry part, when it's triggered, your amygdala will light up. That isn't because it's your amygdala, and it's not because it lives in your amygdala. It's because it pushes that amygdala button to get you angry. So it's it's a different paradigm, right? Right. And that's a bit challenging for 
for scientists. Yeah, you know, it almost sounds like that you're describing, it's really about, you're describing the emergent properties of, the, of, of consciousness uh, when you describe these as sacred beings. It's, this, it's something that you can't quite quant- quantify, but has a probability. Um, and, and, it, and it sounds like, I mean, I've heard some people describe, um, you know, people are, are, are very familiar with IFS now. I think it's one of the fastest growing models in, in, in psychotherapy, um, at least according to one of the, the leading providers of postgraduate education, that they can't keep, they can't keep up with the demand. So, so kudos to, to you and, and the people at, at the uh, leadership, Self-Leadership Institute, Center for Self-Leadership, for, for making this available to people. Um, it really sounds like people are, are grabbing onto it. Sometimes I hear people kind of dabble a little bit with, with parts work. They say they do parts work and, and, and I, and it almost sounds to me, they don't quite fully buy into the whole, the whole package that these are subpersonalities. They, they like the idea of multiplicity. They like, they like the idea of some of the techniques. Um, but it sounds like really what you're saying is no, this is full stop. This is, you're kind of referring to the spiritual core of, of, of us, who we Very really much. are. Yeah. Yeah. There are a lot of models that, uh, that I that notice these things I call parts and give them subhuman titles like schemas or complexes or uh, what else uh, internal objects. Uh, yeah, there there aren't that many of us who will go all the way and say they're full range subpersonalities. Right, right. There are a few like psychosynthesis and uh, 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 voice dialogue. Hal and Citrus Town. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hal died this year. Oh, I didn't realize that. Got to know him at the end. Yeah. Um, yeah, I actually, that was my first training. I, I, I did some consultation with a therapist once who was just, who seemed to have x-ray vision, Dick. You know, she was just kind of commenting on my cases as though somehow she knew these things were about to happen and hadn't yet. And, 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 and they, then they did. And, you know, she gave me some guidance that way. And I, I just kind of stopped in my tracks. This is like more than 10 years ago. I said, uh, how do you know this stuff? She said, well, you should probably just read some of Dick Schwartz's books. <laughs> the rest is history. I went to all the trainings. But that, you know, that sort of, um, prof- I would say, profound ability that it gives in depth perception of a, of a clinician mm-hmm. to, sit somebody, to, to sit with somebody and give them or, or to be with them, pre- be present with them in a way that is much more than just analyzing them or offering them a service that it really does feel like there's something I'm going to use the word um, magical happening. Um, But maybe we can use the word spiritual that there really is something emergent happening. We don't fully understand. And it really seems like your model self-leadership sort of systematizes it. Yeah. I think that's accurate. And yeah, whether or not you believe in their ontological existence as full range your personality is relating to them that way is the most effective way to do it. So from a practical standpoint, um, and that, and that's what I'm trying to bring not only to psychotherapy, but to the culture at large, that a lot of these parts that get demonized and, and that people fight against such that they only get stronger are just trying their best to protect us and are deserving much more of curiosity and then ultimately honoring for their attempts to keep us safe. 
Right, right. Yeah, that, that leads me to my next question, which is about a very popular model of psychotherapy. Everybody seems to know or ask about CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which for people who may not know, really came into vogue um, during, I believe, I want to say the Nixon administration when managed care for insurance companies first started um, coming uh, onto the scene. And, and because it became an evidence-based psychotherapy, it was adopted by these managed care providers as kind of a gold standard. And so it still, I think, is sort of a king of, of the standard uh, or, or provides these standards for psychotherapy. In, in, in my experience, sort of unfortunately, although many therapies are being integrated right now and mindfulness-based is sort of now being added on to almost every psychotherapy that's out there. Um, but yours, you know, IFS and self-leadership is, a, is what you call a constraint-releasing psychotherapy. So can you say yeah. how, that's, how that's different from, say, CBT? Well, there are many, many differences from CBT, but uh, the constraint-releasing approach came from recognizing something we haven't talked about yet, which is that, that just beneath the surface of these parts, there's a state I call the self with a capital S that is in everybody. It's our essence. Uh, talk about spirituality. It's really moved me in a much more spiritual direction than I ever was when I started this journey. Um, and that that self contains these wonderful qualities, what we call the eight C's of self-leadership, which include curiosity, calm, confidence, compassion, and then clarity, creativity, courage, and connection, connectedness. And that I just stumbled onto because my background as a family therapist, I was trying to get conversations going between my client and their parts that I would, similar to what I might do in a family session. And there were parts that were interfering all the time and I would ask them to step back and now you step back, get that part to step back. And as I did that, my client would suddenly change in a dramatic way. Whereas earlier they'd been really angry or really terrified and they got that part to open space inside. It was like it released this other person who could take over the session and knew how to be with these parts in a healing way. <clears throat> and if I was doing a couple session and I could get that person to come out, they wouldn't know how to relate to their partner in a, in a healing way. And when I asked clients, now what part of you is that? They'd say, that's not really a part like these others, that's myself. And so after almost 40 years of doing this, and people now, thousands of people doing it all over the world, we can safely say that that self is in everybody, is just beneath the surface. And when it does come forward, is released, you know, constraints are released, it knows how to heal, uh, it just does. Mm. And so in contrast to so many other therapies and, and thoughts about the world, about how human nature, which say the humans are basically, uh, you know, they, they, they have a lot of pr primitive impulses that, that civilization kind of crusts over that we have to either atone for or repent, maybe, you know, going back uh, in, in religious systems or... In or like, like CBT, you have to correct. Yeah. You, know, you have to correct these rational, these, these irrational thoughts. Right. Uh, that are coming from there. 
But Freud had the libido, which was full of these scary impulses and so on and so on. So most theories have gone there. Um, and so in contrast to all of that, this says if you can create the right conditions where parts feel like it's safe to open that space, then you're releasing the constraints that are keeping your client from healing themselves. In contrast to things like CBT or other, other kinds of therapies where the therapist has to give the client what they're missing. It's a deficit-based model. That right. Some kind right. of lack of insight or some kind of uh, lack of inner dialogue. So let me that, just summarize what you said because I think it's so important for people to get this part that that as if you were you were well known as in fact as a, as a family therapist. So you you would work with multiple people in the room at the same time, kind of a crowd. Right. right. So you'd have a group of people, a family, at least a mother and a father, or or a husband and wife, or partners. And when they start talking at the same time, it's just sort of common sense. I mean, but this is actually a very important point of family therapy is that the, the therapist creates boundaries and says, wait a minute, I can't hear you both. One of you speak, you be quiet. Yeah. It's your turn. Something like that. That's right. And, uh, and, and you had this idea that, wait a minute, um, even when you're sitting with a person by herself or himself, you still have to do that with those yeah. people. Yeah, because you'd have lots of parts talking. Okay, get that one to step back, get that one to open space, get that one, let's hear from this one. And then the person who comes out to hear from this one is quite different from those parts that were polarized with the one you're trying to get to know. Right. And, 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 and what's the, can you just describe for people the trajectory from, from you know, person coming in, as we would say, uh, as an IFS therapist would say, fully blended with their parts, walking into the room. And when you, um, and then the difference, the trajectory from there, getting them to have parts step aside, or they, they ask parts of them to step aside. What's the difference? Like, how does it feel in the room with them? And what do you see happening with them when that happens? Yeah. So that's a process we call unblending because most of us are, especially when we're having problems, are very blended with some of these parts and their extremes and what I'm going to call their burdens. So this idea of burdens is a really important concept that I think is unique to IFS. And the idea being that, uh, like we were talking about the angry part or the critic or the terrified one, isn't just the burden it carries. That because of some earlier experience, could be a trauma or a bad parenting or something, we took in those emotions and beliefs about the world or beliefs about ourselves that came with those traumatic experiences. And those we call burdens, extreme beliefs and emotions that came into your system, either from some direct experience in your life or you inherited or absorbed from your family or from your ethnic group or from our culture and attached to these parts, almost like <laughs> the COVID virus, they become like a virus that enters one of your parts and then drives the way it operates thereafter. And uh, much of the culture and much of psychotherapy 
mistakes the burden for the part. So if somebody comes in and they're having a panic attack, I'm not thinking, oh, their anxiety is out of control, in which case you might try to do some CBT or something or you know, some mindfulness or some uh, grounding. I'm thinking, oh, there's this little scared part that's totally taken over now. Hmm. How can I get it to separate so that they can start to help it? So you're, you're, you have the vision to see almost kind of through the, the outer part, the, the external presentation of the person, the behavior or the language they're using, the emotions, and kind of imagine that there is and really believe that there is something else behind there. And you, and you sort of start to get moved or mobilized to find it. Well, we don't have to find it. They're having the panic attack. <laughs> okay, so right. <laughs> it's right in the, in the office. So I'm, I'll, I'll talk to it as a part first. I'll say, like if it was you, Keith, I would say, I can see there's a part of you that's really, really scared mm-hmm. and it's taken over and it's very welcome here. Right. I want it to know that this is a safe place for it and I get that it's really scared and, and we're going to help it. And it'll be easier to help it if it wouldn't mind pulling its energy out of you a little bit. So you can be there with it too. Mm-hmm. So see if it's willing. Just ask it inside if it would give you maybe even 10% less of its energy so you can be with it. And so, boom, people yeah. are grounded. Yeah. So like as you do that, for me, if I just roll with you here, what, you know, I, I, I begin to um, start to focus inside, actually. I, I have to, because of the nature of your question, you're not asking me a, a closed-ended question. How, you know, do you feel tingling in your toes? Do you feel lightheaded? You're not asking any of these objective, which, by the way, may be very helpful. You know, is there someone, is somebody threatening you today? You know, what's happened today? Tell me your story, right? Those are, those are all, you know, basic things. I, I would hope every, you know, counselor and social worker and nurse at the ER knows how to assess with somebody. But, but the question you're bringing forward almost sort of brings your presence towards me in a way where I have to sort of look inside. I have to actually, and you're saying, just go ahead and do it. Just, and just, just ask is, and just see, is there something going yeah. on inside of you? What's really happening? Yeah. And I will have, have kind of uh, talked that part into being willing to separate. <laughs> uh-huh. So then when I hand it back to you and say, ask if it's willing to pull this energy out, just even for a little while, and then you would say, okay, it seems like it has. And then I would say, how do you feel toward this anxious part of you? So now there's a you who has a relationship with this part of you that we've separated. And that, in a sense, is mindfulness. Right. I was going to so ask you way, about mindfulness. Yeah. Yeah. In a way, mindfulness is just unblending. It's really separating from right. the thoughts and emotions and noticing them rather than being awash in them. But mindfulness doesn't take the next step, which is to, I would say to you, how do you feel toward this part? And you might say, I'm really afraid of it. It it has the power to take over and make me totally freak out and anxious. I would say, okay, let's let's get that, that other one who's afraid of it to give us some space. Now I really hate it because it's ruining my life. Okay, let's get that one to step back too some point, if I asked now, how do you feel toward it? You would say some version of, I'm just kind of curious about why it's so scared. Or even, I feel sorry for it. I want to help it. So two, those are two of those eight Cs. Right, right. 
and you would feel a lot more confident relative to it and a lot calmer relative to it. So now we're starting to get yourself on board. And from that place, this very terrified part of you starts to relax a little bit and sees, well, there is somebody grown up in there who can start to help me. And then I would have you relate to it in a caring, loving, like you would a scared child. Right. And it, and then we find out where it's stuck in the past and we get it out of there and we help it unload all the terror it carries. You're listening to the soul of life podcast with me, Keith Miller. Every week I bring you a new episode that hopefully inspires you to reflect more on who you are and who you want to be in this rapidly changing world. If this time we share together moves you somehow closer to who you are or lights up parts of you that have been unplugged, I want to hear from you and please share the love. Take a moment to find the Soul of Life podcast in the social media where you hang out on iTunes, Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube, and let me know who you are. You mentioned mindfulness, you know, and, and how, you know, maybe can you say more about how it's different from mindfulness? Because there's such a groundswell, and, and, and I'm so thankful for this. Maybe you feel the same way, but, you know, it seems as though people are more educated about um, how to be with their parts um, because of things like yoga or mindfulness. You know, there's different ways people are encountering um, focusing types of activities that allows their, allows them to get in touch with their body and just notice what's happening without trying to change it, which is the definition of mindfulness. Um, So yeah. yeah, Can you say more about it? Cause you know, a lot of people I think do mindfulness and they, 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 kind of figure, well, that's good enough, you know. In fact, there's a lot of research that says, you know, the eight weeks, the mindfulness-based stress reduction course, courses that are that are that John Kabat-Zinn is so well known for being also very evidence-based and saying, you know, you can kind of, it's kind of like dirt. You can kind of just rub it on anything, you know. <laughs> it's not quite, but you, it's so useful. There's such utility to it. Um, it, it, it works. Um, so how is it different? Is, is, is IFS and self-leadership just mindfulness on steroids? You can think of it that way. <laughs> so, um, you know, from my point of view, mindfulness is a good first step because it does access a self a lot of the time. Um, you know, I know that there are also many people with big trauma histories who can't do it uh, and who are very frustrated and feel even worse because they can't do it. And that's because their parts don't want them to access self that quickly or, or afraid to separate from, their, from them. And, Can you give an example? And, like what might happen to a you know, person? Why would their parts be not letting them um, meditate? Well, lots of different reasons. If they're afraid, if they still their mind, all these what we call exiled parts are going to have access and they're going to take over and overwhelm them. And so all the protective parts that are trying to keep all that locked away are have to be busy keeping your mind full. And so the idea of opening a lot of space inside is terrifying to those parts. And so that's some of what I'm trying to bring to spirituality. Because, uh, but there's many other reasons why they, they're afraid to do that. And lots of highly traumatized people are drawn to meditation, drawn to spiritual traditions to try and get some help. So, um, so that's a problem. But it's a really, and, really a gift. What you're, what you're offering is, is saying, hey, you, you know, you're on the right track. This is the first step. 
And, yeah. and you're just kind of saying, hey, you know, you can have the courage to go further. There's, there's more if you want it. Well, it's sort of a, a difference. Mindfulness, particularly in people who haven't, don't have those histories, can be very useful in terms of helping the people function in their lives and not be so blended with these, these parts. Uh, and so I, I'm a fan at that level, but it doesn't really heal them. There's not a lot of healing involved. So IFS takes the next steps toward actually unburdening, unloading these extreme beliefs and emotions that came into you from these earlier times and allowing the parts to transform such that you don't even have to work to be mindful because they're not bugging you all the time. They're in totally different roles now and you hardly notice them. And uh, so that you don't even have to be addicted to the practice that much. It's just kind of natural to have, a, have all these eight C's in your body. So in other words, even the, the rubric, if you will, or the algorithm, the, 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 the steps of IFS, the, the procedure, uh, even that eventually just steps aside. Yeah. And the, the person just I mean, embodies kind of their, what they were created to be, who they are. Yeah. I mean, you still may have conversations with them and notice them, but they're not extreme like they were. And you feel much more unitary in general. Right. Because right. they get along with each other now and they trust you as a leader. And, uh, yeah, they don't disappear, though. And that's the mistake that the MPD people made, was that they're, because they're the sign of pathology, health becomes this unitary mind that doesn't have parts. So for me, health is just harmony. It's, it's this kind of sense of, of self-leadership and harmony inside. As it relates to something people are talking about right now, Mary Trump, uh, the niece of Donald Trump, released a book, last week called too much and never enough how my family created the world's most dangerous man and the the title of that book really perked my ears up it sounded like something i witness and see a lot in my clinical practice um, in family systems that are um, the old term would be dysfunctional but the term we would use in ifs would be out of balance i believe um too much and never enough i want to read to you um, a, a section from that book and just ask you to comment on on this particular trait that she said was in the, is, was in the Trump family about how uh, feelings were not acceptable, certain feelings. Uh, and she writes in, in this chapter titled, The First Son, uh, abuse can be quiet and insidious just as often as, or even more than, it is loud and violent. As far as I know, my grandfather, she's referring to Fred, wasn't a physically violent man or even a particularly angry one. He didn't have to be. He expected to get what he wanted and almost always did. It wasn't his inability to fix his oldest son that infuriated him. It was the fact that Freddie, Donald's brother, simply wasn't what he wanted him to be. Fred dismantled his oldest son by devaluing and degrading every aspect of his personality and his natural abilities until all that was left was self-recrimination and a desperate need to please a man who had no use for him. She goes on, the only reason Donald escaped the same fate is that his personality served his father's purpose. That's what sociopaths do. They co-opt others and use them toward their own ends, ruthlessly and efficiently with no tolerance for dissent or resistance. Fred destroyed Donald too, but not by snuffing him out as he did Freddie. Instead, he short-circuited Donald's ability to develop and experience the entire spectrum of human emotion. By limiting Donald's access to his own feelings, 
and rendering them many of them unacceptable, Fred perverted his son's perception of the world and damaged his ability to live in it. Can you comment on your experience with people, Dick, for whatever reason they've experienced combat or violence or loss, they've lost touch with their feelings? Yeah, sure. And, and I would, uh, I haven't read her book, but uh, I would agree with a lot of that. I would also frame it differently if you want me to get into that. Yeah, you know? say more, please. Okay, so she's saying that uh, he destroyed his brother by, by, I guess his brother was artistic and it just wasn't cut out for the family business. He ended up training as a pilot for TWA. Yeah, he wanted to be a pilot also, yeah. And so someone like Fred Trump, the father, has these manager parts that we're talking about that are totally driven toward profit and racism and all the burdens that they carry and dominate him. And he wants his kids to enter his world and, and uh, join him, him there. And when they don't or won't, then this critic of, of Donald, of Fred's attacks. And so Donald watched his older brother go through that. And some part of Donald said, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be destroyed that way. Use a quick I'm going to take. I'm going to take on this legacy burden of Fred's, uh, of, you know, uh, disdain for vulnerability and for your own vulnerability and everybody else's. And you know, he just took on Fred's energy, basically. Right. Not because he was destroyed by it, but that was his, the way he could survive being the son to Fred. And in fact, could maybe protect himself from Fred by both doing what Fred wants, but also carrying that energy that made him not care about any other parts of him or any of those sensitive parts of him. So he had to exile all of those parts. And, you know, when you see him, you can see what a little kid he is. And, yeah. and you know, it's not, it's not okay what he's doing in the country, but yeah. you can just, you just know how much fear there is in that man and how much need for some kind of approval that drives all his narcissism and all those other things. So, and, and I've worked with people like that. I've worked with people who would be described as narcissistic, sociopathic types who fit that profile because they're dominated by that part, but it's just one part. So that's one of the ways I would disagree with her. It's not a life sentence. It's part right. of you right. that's desperately trying to protect you. And if I can create enough confidence, enough uh, trust with someone initially who is, who's dominated by that part, help them see it as a part, talk to it, honor it for its attempts to protect them and how necessary that was when they were young, and get permission to go to the parts it protects, which are all these exiled, vulnerable parts, and heal those, then that'll, then this, this protector that's so contemptuous of vulnerability will change. It almost sounds so, like you're describing a, a, a dynamic in which you would, uh, just to use a political term, sort of uh, create a, uh, a, a leadership change. Right, a, a coup. Like you would, yeah. you would basically be working behind the scenes, negotiating 
the way uh, you know governments actually do when you know there's in other countries of these you know that are you know destabilized states or whatever there's another government actually starting to form in the background which is trying to provide leadership and meet the needs in some way that's better now obviously they typically get overthrown with violence so I wonder <laughs> you know violence usually becomes a a resource for people trying to overthrow um, these managers who who seem to people to be so obviously evil and careless about others. Uh, what would you say? What what can you say about about why violence is not the answer? Why hatred is not the answer towards somebody who who appears to be harming others and really has no sensitivity to that? Well. Because if, again, if you think in this way, that that is just a part of them that's, that's doing that, it's doing very destructive things, but it's doing it because it's trying to deal with all this pain in there, all this terror, all this shame, uh, you do have more compassion. Now, that compassion doesn't mean that you don't stop them from hurting people. It doesn't mean that you're, that you're just nice to them all the time but you can stand up to them uh, from self, from that C word courage and clarity and confidence in a way that will stop them. And, uh, and you know, that's starting to happen more with Trump. And as you can see, the more desperate he gets, the more he's facing being a loser, which is like death to him, you said, the more extreme his his firefighters are getting, his protectors, and rounding up people and throwing them in, in cars, you know. And yeah, it's really scary. And you mentioned the word firefighter. Can you, you know, that may be new to some people. Um, there, there's two different kinds of protectors in the, in the self-leadership model, uh, managers and firefighters. And they tend, to be, they tend to be trying to do the same thing, which is protect the, the self, the person, protect the, uh, the, the, the person, exile the, the exile yeah. parts. Uh, say more about firefighters. Yeah, so as you say, we have these manager parts we've been talking about, and they often are the inner critics, but they can be lots of different roles. And they're just trying to manage our lives so that we get what, what they, like Fred Trump, wanted lots of money and wants lots of power. Is the, they're trying to manage things so that happens. And they're not, they're not bad, right? They're doing the best they can. I mean, they, they no, take they're on... just trying to fill these, these holes that live inside of people like that, that are, you know, they're buckets with a hole in them. So you put something in it, it doesn't take they a do day more. before it's, it's empty and you've got to fill it up again. Yep. So you can have sympathy for those people, but they also are very destructive. So you, you do have to stand up to them. Um, and then people like that, when the managers strike out or life triggers their exiles for different reasons, uh, they, have, they have to have other parts that are gonna take them places where they don't have to feel anything. And, take the, and often those can be quite extreme and they're, they're what we call firefighters because they're fighting the pain they're fighting the fire of the pain or the fire of the terror that these exiles carry. And they tend to be very impulsive and have very little concern for the consequences, for the collateral damage they do to your life. They just know, I've got to get you to feel better somehow, feel more control, like 
with Trump or feel um, like a winner again, or, you know, he, they've taken away his rallies. So he doesn't get this hit of, right. of adoration all the time. And so his, his exiles are really, really hurting. It's, so yeah, yeah. he's got to find other ways to feel good. So and, the firefighters mobilize when basically it's it's a last resort. It's almost right like it, maybe the analog in the neurobiological model is, or to think about the nervous system is simply the fight or flight response. It's sort of the, I feel like I'm in danger of dying, like sort of thing where where people can be feeling that way when somebody cuts them off in traffic, actually. They don't realize that, they're, that their nervous system is, is actually acting the way they would act if they were be, trying to be, trying to escape death um, when somebody cuts them off. But that's the kind of the body's getting enlisted, the brain's getting enlisted. Firefighter activity has that sort of impulsive tone to it. Is that right? Yeah, it's very, firefighters are impulsive. Uh, they, they aren't always the, the last resort. Some people rely on them a lot more than others. Uh, some people, it's the first resort. Right. And most of us have a kind of hierarchy of them. So if the first one doesn't work, then you go to the next one, and that's what you're seeing in Trump. If he can't do the rally, he's got to do the domination. If he can't do that, he's got to do something even more extreme. Right. right. And at the top of that hierarchy for many people is suicide. So, yeah. so there's, you know, the stakes are pretty high for a lot of people. Yeah. So. Um, w- would it be safe to say that, that a, and I know we cannot speculate for people we've, we've not treated, obviously, but. Is it safe to say that generally speaking, somebody who has um, you know, a lot of manager activity, extreme manager activity, so let's say that's hurting others, right? That would be an example of a manager like constricting somebody else's life or controlling somebody else's life, um, organizing you know, some you know, uh, compulsions, OCD. Those are all manager-driven examples of extreme symptoms. And, right. and firefighters also, rage would be one of them, substance abuse, addiction, that sort of thing. But People who exhibit those extreme ranges of protector, protector activity, is it safe to say that there is, is kind of a latent suicidality about them, actually, that they're not aware of, they're not in touch with because of all of this activity um, that keeps them from really recognizing how, you know, getting in touch with these exiles, which might actually be quite self-loathing? Well, that's been my experience, and that's what I was hinting at. That, yeah. Uh, it's a big safety net for lots of people to know that if things get bad enough, there's the ultimate escape if I need yeah. it. Yeah. And, and a lot of your protectors know, and that's why they're sweating it, that if they don't do the job, that's just looming. You know, that right. could be minutes. Right, right. Yeah, I don't know about you, but when, you know, before COVID and before the, the Black Lives Matter movement in the in, in the the social justice conversations that we've been having it, it you know mass shootings were were a big topic you know we were we were talking about mass shootings and violence and gun violence and uh one of the things that always kind of makes my skin crawl a little gets under my skin i guess i should say is is when when a political leader comes out and says well um this was once again a senseless act of violence mm-hmm. and i just i just want to shake, shake shake them and say no this actually makes perfect sense when we understand um, yeah. you know, the exiles and the context and, and how much people are hurting to do those extreme things. That, that's just that's not right. what we're meant to do. We're not meant to wake up one day and go out and see how many people can, we can hurt. Um, yeah. um, so I, I want to ask you just, I guess, a couple final questions. Um, you know, I, I, did, I did share about my, my recovery from depression. And, and I shared with you that I, you know, had this 
uh, awakening experience, it was really because of an oncologist, a doctor who I was going to for other reasons to see if I had cancer, frankly, because I was, I was at the, uh, you know, I was out of options. I was basically um, suffering from memory loss, um, brain fog, peripheral neuro- neuropathy, numbness in my hands and feet very scary symptoms and went to almost 40 doctors uh, over the course of about six months and had invasive procedures done to test for um, uh, celiac disease, you know, malabsorption issues in the, in the gut. Um, I figured it was B, vitamin B12 deficiency. There's this, I won't get into the whole story, but there's a, there's, you know, a, it's a possibility that people can be suffering from these symptoms. And so, you know, I started um, on, on this path to recovery uh, basically because the doctor said, you got to get lost. You got to get out of my clinic here. There's people who need chemo here, buddy. And you're right. healthy. You're 43 years old. You're athletic. Get, get out of here um, and take the Zoloft with you, he said. <laughs> and, and I did. You know, I wasn't able to absorb Dick um, when other people had, you know, it wasn't the first time I had considered is this depression. But I had checked the box, no, every single time. Um, for, for many different reasons, I think because my managers were doing the assessment. Um, right. And there was something, I really deeply believe this, there's something about the man, and, I, and I, I will, I'm going to be interviewing him in a couple of weeks, Dr. Frederick Min, he's an oncologist, hematologist, uh, a blood chemistry specialist. And something about him, uh, he was able to share himself with me. You know, he didn't do any, he didn't do any therapy. I was there, you know, in a few minutes in his office, but he, he stood up to me, actually. He said, Hey kid, get lost, get out of here. But he said, he, he had this compassion about him and he, and he said, you gotta, you gotta look at what's going on inside yourself. But he told me more about himself that made, that really got my attention. I wasn't ready to take the Zoloft. I wasn't ready to embrace it as a medical, uh, embrace all the, all the, great tools we have medically to help with things like this. What's your experience been with burnout as it relates to the health and healing professions? Because I guess like you, I consider myself a healer in this work. And I know physicians, um, they're under enormous stress right now with COVID. There were two notable suicides uh, that were physicians. One was an ER doctor in New York City during the surge. Very tragic uh, when there isn't something for us as healers, as someone that's there for us. And what's your experience with burnout in, in the healing profession? Yeah. So uh, there's, there's a physician named uh, Lou Lucas, University of Nebraska, who's actively trying to bring IFS to, to that topic to particularly for physicians, but you know, it's rampant in all the healthy, helping professions, especially now. And there's a lot I think IFS can do for people like you who would reach that point. Um, one common, in terms of my experience with helpers, there are many people who feel like if you don't take in your client's feelings for them, you're not helping them. And when I work with somebody, I'm not taking their feelings in at all. I'm feeling for them. I'm in a place of compassion. I care about them and I want to help them. But they've got their feelings. I'm not bringing that in. And when you work with those, those people that do take it in, generally you find they're stuck in the past where they had to take care of some parent or somebody else. And they thought the way to do that was to take away their, their depression by taking it in themselves or 
take away their fear by taking it in themselves. And when you find those parts and you get them to um, unburden all that stuff, the legacy burden they picked up from their parents, and learn they don't have to do that with their clients, then it's much, much easier. Right. So it's just one example. There's many, many ways that uh, this can help therapists, not the least of which is offering a model that isn't so, first is uplifting to use and doesn't require so much output from the therapist. It's very lightweight. Yeah, well, you feel light. You feel yeah. happy and privileged to be with your client and loving the sacred space you're in. So it's, it, it's a, the model itself is a burnout prevention. Yeah, yeah I, I would agree with that for sure. Um, and, and lastly, I guess, any, any experience, I know you talk about the story of you had, you had open heart surgery, I believe, some time ago. Um, 2003. 2003. And, and I presume everything's well with you. I, I, I wonder. So far, so good, yeah. As you knock on your head. <laughs> everything's still in there. That's good. I'm curious if you can share about, you know, the, the connection between what we experience in our, in our body. I, I think a lot of people are familiar with this term psychosomatic. Yeah. And, and I feel there's, it's, it's commonly confused or it's, very, it's a confusing term. First of all, psychosomatic is redundant because the, the, the brain exists in the body. The brain is part of the body and we can more or less just call it somatic or call it the mind body. But people more or less think of psychosomatic symptoms as, oh, it's a make-believe. It's a fictitious symptom. They're not really feeling pain. It's just in their head. Yeah. What's your experience with how the, the brain and body connect? Well, my experience is pretty vast, actually. I, I come from a big medical family, and so I really wanted to show that this worked with medical issues. And we did our outcome study uh, with rheumatoid arthritis, and people got really, really much better simply by focusing on the symptom and arthritis case, the pain, and getting clients curious about the pain and having them ask if there's some message. And they would usually find the, in that particular study, was mainly Irish Catholic Boston mothers who have never been in therapy. And they would find that the pain was trying to, that the parts using the pain were trying to get them to wake up and not take care of everybody all the time because they had these massive caretaking manager parts that would never let them take care of themselves and was totally self-sacrificing. And the arthritis was not, was going to, cripple them so they couldn't keep doing it or it was going to make them stop. Yeah. And uh, once we got that worked out and we unburdened the, the patriarchal legacy burden about taking care of men and all that, then the arthritis went away mm. or got better anyway. Wow. And uh, so I find that over and over, not That's that astounding pattern necessarily, but when uh, and it's certainly not true for all medical symptoms, right? but parts will use what they've got. If they can't get through to you directly and they know about your asthma or they know about, in my case, my migraine headaches, or, mm -hmm. then they'll push that button if you don't mm -hmm. listen to them. Mm -hmm. And then you can get them to stop pushing that button. And 
So, so walk that through with me. In other words, you're, you, 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 you experience migraines and you, when, when it happens to you, when you, when you feel the onset of a migraine, whatever that may be, blurred vision or some, you know, something, you can feel it. Um, yeah. you, you've learned or you, you figured out that you can work with your parts, which is, you know, focus on what's happening for you emotionally in your mind body. And, and the symptoms may go away. Actually, I don't get them anymore, but when wow. I did, yeah. When I did, I would focus on the symptoms and get curious. And fi- I found the parts that were furious at me for not listening to them. Mm-hmm. And then I started to listen to them. <laughs> and now they don't give me migraines anymore. Wow. So, I mean, what you just said, it sounds simple. I mean, you're... you're, you're... Yeah. You're good at what you do, Dick. So it sounds simple, but I want, you know, it is really profound what you're saying um, that you've, you basically talk to the part of you that was giving you the migraines and you asked it or figured out what it was concerned about. You listened to it and yeah, that produced a relief. Yeah. Right. Listened, listened to it. Yeah. Listen to it. And then you got to take action, you know, to yeah. change what it's mad about. Right. Right. And then it it'll, then it can be more direct. It knows now. It can, it's like a kid, you know. When you don't talk to a kid, he he's so furious with you. He'll do something acting out wise. But if you just listen to him, and he knows you can, he'll listen to him all the time. He doesn't need to act out that way. It's amazing. It's 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 so simple and so elegant. I think that's what's what's so uh, remarkable to me about when I said lightweight how this model, even though I'd also describe it as very sophisticated and it is because it holds up to, you know, anything out there. And as far as talking about how the brain and body work, it's a real privilege and an honor to speak with you, Dick. And, and I really appreciate your time. Was there anything else you wanted to add? I don't think so, Keith, but I've really enjoyed talking with you today and uh, you pulled a lot of good stuff out of me. I appreciate it. (laughs) Great. There's, there's a lot of good stuff in there, man. <laughs> really appreciate your energy and, and all that you're doing and, and your gifts uh, to all of us uh, out there doing this healing work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Soul of Life. This is Keith Miller. Oh, and don't forget, please leave a thumbs up or a like for this episode wherever you're listening so that others like you may find the soul of life. I mean, Really, it's not every day you get to share the soul of life with someone. Okay, so you can post a comment or question on souloflifeshow.com. I'd love to hear from you. And please subscribe now to get the next episode. I look forward to sharing more of my soul of life with you. I like it and it's not harsh to my eardrum. All right, I will go.